Hi, welcome to Quality. This is Arjun Venkatesh, your host, and we are exploring quality in emergency care. Today, we're kicking off our new podcast series as part of the ASAP Emergency Quality Network Stroke Initiative. I'm joined by Dr. Corey Zacherson, who is an emergency physician at Mass General Hospital in Boston, a nationally recognized stroke care delivery researcher, and probably most importantly, has been my partner in crime and co-lead of the Equal Stroke Initiative for the past four years. I'm excited because today we're going to talk about stroke care. We're talking about QI. We're talking about why and what's worked that we've learned over the past few years and what we're planning for the coming years to come. Corey, I'm going to let you kind of kick us off with helping me think about how quality improvement and doing QI projects has been what's really been able to move the needle on stroke care in our EDs. Yeah. Well, thanks, Arjun, for the intro and really happy to be here and talking about this. You know, stroke is one of those things where our job as an emergency physician really is critically important. And we really have an opportunity to get them the care that they need at the time that they need it. That happens when we actually are thoughtful about our approaches and investing in the way that we're thinking about doing this. And so I think that really the advantage of EQUAL and the work that we've been doing is by giving emergency departments the tools to do that for our patients. And those tools are, I mean, it's interesting, um, I think, and I, I recognize this sort of working at a big comprehensive stroke center, we take some things for granted. Um, and I've been impressed by across the EQUAL network, the uptake of a lot of good best practices, which are mostly community EDs, rural EDs that we have across the network. But I saw recently in one of your publications that um, only about two thirds of the EDs reported having a stroke protocol. And Tell me, do you think that's because it's just they're not a stroke center, so they didn't make one? Or is it, you know, is it because these are hard to put together, right? Like, what's, how do we get that to 100? And would it even matter if we did? Yeah, I'm going I'm to start with the end of your question first, because um, I think the, the question of why, whether it matters is the first and most important thing. And, and I would say that yeah, the answer is yes. Um, even here at MGH, you know, we looked at um, our patients who, do not speak English as their primary language versus those that do and looked at our time metrics and found that actually language was not even slowing down our stroke processes. And I think that the answer for that is because we have protocols and because we're standardizing our approach. And so it's really a way that we're ensuring that we're delivering equitable care, regardless of, you know, other barriers that may come in and make the make would have otherwise made that process um, more challenging. And a protocol also has the advantage of just ensuring that we're delivering evidence-based care to every patient, regardless of who they are, regardless of who the physician is or the advanced practice provider is, um, that we're really making sure that we're getting all patients the care that they should have. And so, yes, I think the answer is clear that protocols are helpful for that. I presented the study that you're talking about at the International Stroke Conference in February and had some stroke neurologists approach me afterwards, just in absolute shock that there are emergency departments in our country that don't have a stroke protocol. And I had to tell them that I didn't actually think that it was that surprising because I, I think they're not really envisioning those small emergency departments that may be operating with, you know, very few resources, having lower patient volumes, maybe they get 10 strokes a year. And so the importance of, you know, having dedicated resources for stroke may seem um, less critical for them. But the reality is, for those emergency departments, the stroke is a high stakes, low frequency event. And so having the protocol in place actually is going to ensure that they are getting those patients the right care 
when it's something that they're not doing often. You know, it's interesting our, at our health system, we've done a lot of fun improvement work on implementing care pathways. And so you can imagine we've built care pathways a bunch of, around a lot of common things that we do in emergency medicine, chest pain, abdominal pain, things like that. But we've also built these care pathways for really rare, like, rare things that are always hard to do. Needle stick is probably the best example I use or intimate partner violence, where you really want to get it right and do it right, but we just don't see it as frequently. And what we have found is when we look at the actual use of these pathways and what people end up using, they tend to pick exactly what you said. They tend to pick the things that are high stakes for them and making an error, but that they don't see as frequently. And so in that same way, I could totally see a stroke protocol in many ways is that safety check in lower volume hospitals uh, to make it sort of easier to do the right thing um, when you don't get as much practice. Uh, that So that paper, I love that paper because it also, it. I think debunked a bunch of myths that exist out there around what kind of capabilities emergency departments and community have around the country when it comes to stroke care. Uh, let's tackle one that always comes up, which is about who has an MRI, who doesn't have an MRI, who has a CT, who doesn't have, and who has CTA, particularly given some of the newer guidelines and the newer recommendations coming out, which it looks like, you know, CTA or CT perfusion may have certain indications and it may be better than MRI things. What's your sense of sort of imaging access that's out there right now and how we can sort of deliver the best quality of stroke care to the broader population, even if we can't build another scanner? Yeah, I think um, you're right. The, we all in emergency medicine are very familiar with the fact that emergency departments have widely varying capabilities, but this felt like a really important finding to get out there um, to those who are, you know, for whom this is not their reality. Um, so I think we found that about 50% of emergency departments don't have MRI. The vast, vast majority do have CT. And among those, the vast majority have CT angio as well. However, we're not just talking about having the machines. We're also talking about having the radiologists reading them. And we also found that there were some sites that didn't have 24-7 radiology. And so that obviously is going to introduce um, challenges when patients are coming in off hours or for patients who are coming into sites that don't have CTA, that don't have MRI, and an emergency doc is concerned about whether this patient might have a large vessel occlusion stroke, but isn't able to figure that out with the imaging that they have at hand. And so I would say in those cases, probably the, the best strategy is for those sites to work with their frequent transfer partners. So where are they sending their stroke patients in general? And to work with the, those receiving sites and thinking about what the right protocol would be and how they should engage in identifying patients who might need transfer for the right imaging study if they're concerned that the patient might have an LVO. Another possibility is something that we did in Massachusetts where we actually had state committee that included interventional neurologists, stroke neurologists, radiologists, who all came together and agreed upon what would be the right CTA protocol that we want all of our transferring sites to be using so that we can look at their images and act on them when they get to us at the academic site. And then that team went out to every community hospital in the state and ensured that they had the right tools to be doing the imaging in the way that would be most helpful. And then also ensured that they had the right tools to be transferring imaging so that patients weren't having to get duplicative imaging after they were transferred. And so there really is a great opportunity for coordinated systems of care and hospitals coming together and working together as a team um, to kind of make sure that we're doing the right thing for these patients. Yeah, no, it's interesting when you think about 
everything you described, sort of the chain and the set of resources you need in order to deliver any sort of, you know, advanced imaging study, it makes you think of the model to get used a lot in disaster and other places in emergency medicine, where you ask the question of, do you have the staff, do you have the space, and do you have the supplies? And so I can, particularly in our current model, think of a lot of situations where you may have a scanner, you may have an MRI, but you can't get it read. Or vice versa could happen. And particularly on reading, teleradiology has changed a lot of the access to and the availability of what you can do if you've got a scanner that's sort of up and running. The same is really true and really rapidly changing when we think about neurology access. You know, I think if you backed it up 10 years ago, the question simply was, is do you or do you not have neurology consultation? And the whole debate that was happening around emergency stroke care as we were trying to increase access to thrombolytic therapy was whether or not an emergency physician was going to do that with or without a neurologist with them at the bedside. Now it seems like from your data, there's a million ways to skin that cat, that there's teleneurology, there's nighttime teleneurology, there's partially in person, there's, you know, different ways to do it. What do you know? Like, what are you seeing right now in terms of sort of the distribution of access to sort of stroke specialists or neurology specialists to emergency physicians? And how is that changing the care delivery model? You're absolutely right. We are seeing increasing access. That said, we looked at this a year or two ago, and we found that there are still 36% of emergency departments in the country. They're not connected with any sort of stroke certification. They're not acute stroke ready hospitals, and they also do not have telestroke. And so, you know, that's almost 2,000 emergency departments out there that may or may not have great access to neurology and probably don't, given that they're not acute stroke ready hospitals even. Um, and so I think you're right. We are seeing a lot of improvement, probably, you know, close to half of EDs in the U.S. are using telestroke at this point, but there's still a gap. These, um, you know, the sort of thinking about these like structures, these capabilities that EDs have has been really interesting. The other thing I've seen come from the Equal Network that you've led up is really the creation of a lot of new metrics for stroke care. And the one I thought that was that I thought I was really proud to be part of the work with you around was the metrics for ICH care. When I think about ICH, I, I mean, my head still goes to where I was in residency, which is you can't do anything about it. 50% of patients die and we don't have treatments that make a difference. That's not true anymore in 2023. Tell me why. Yeah, I mean, the most proximal reason is the Interact 3 trial that just came out that showed that a, a sort of bundled care approach to ICH in the emergency setting actually was associated with improved outcomes for patients. And so what does that mean? That meant avoiding platelets unless, you know, it was indicated in a patient who's expecting surgery. That meant targeted blood pressure management, lowering smoothly, not too quickly or too dramatically to an, to a reasonable target. That meant glucose uh, monitoring, temperature monitoring, things that are pretty straightforward for us to do in the emergency department and, and actually done when done together can make a difference for patients. That's great. I, you know, I think that this, that's another example of sort of how in stroke care, the evidence is changing really fast. COVID has probably resulted in a lot of changes in our care delivery systems. And one of the reasons I'm really excited about our stroke collaborative this year and next around supporting sites and improving their stroke care is that we wanna find a way to get this kind of evidence into practice. I think everybody's heard the old adage that it takes somewhere between seven and 17 years for research, clinical research to end up in practice. And, you know, with the technology that we have out there now, with AI coming out on the scene, with all the support we can get developed through electronic health records, we should be able to turn those years and years into months, if not weeks. 
And I think our hope in the eQual network is to be able to support a lot of sites in doing that with stroke care. And so, you know, Corey and I have reached out. We have a wonderful set of experts that are part of our eQual Stroke Initiative Technical Expert Panel. There's a ton of national experts from the emergency medicine community, some from beyond the emergency medicine community that we're bringing in. But we're going to have future podcasts in this series that talk about new innovations in ICH care. We're going to talk about differences in thrombolytics. There's a lot of discussion now on the use of tenecteplase, which totally changes dosing, administration, ease of use for thrombolytic therapy. We're going to be talking about hot topics in TIA management. How do you facilitate outpatient discharge? What's the right imaging study? We'll feature any new guidelines that come out and talk about what that means for emergency medicine practice, whether those are ASAP clinical policies or if there's guidelines that come from AHA or other organizations. And then we're also going to talk about how you do stroke care in either resource-limited settings, applying new telehealth technologies, really thinking about a new way in which stroke care delivery can get every patient, regardless of where you live, access to timely and uh, it's really essential care. And so, Corey, I want to thank you. That was an awesome uh, discussion. I give every one of our guests uh, the chance at a soapbox. And so uh, I'm going to give you the same. If there was one thing you want all the equal participants out there to hear about either the stroke initiative or stroke care, what's that one key morsel of knowledge? I just really value everybody's participation in equal. I think, um, you know, a lot of stroke QI work that's been done nationally has been done by organizations that require, you know, subscriptions and a very high level of input from sites that are participating, you know, a dedicated person doing chart abstractions, you know, almost as their full-time job. And I think one of the great things about Equal is that this is a, you know, this is a no cost opportunity to invest in your stroke care from a name that's trusted, you know, from within our field with expertise from, you know, people we trust in emergency medicine and really getting the best of the best um, from within ourselves. And so I think this is a way that we can come together as a field in emergency medicine to push back on the idea that we're not invested in stroke care. I think, you know, there's still a little bit of perception from outside of emergency medicine that we're resistant to doing the right thing for our patients. And I think that's absolutely not true. We all know that we want to do the best thing for our patients. And so I'm just really proud of Equal and what we're doing here and, and working together to, to show that that's what we want to do and that's what we care about. So thanks for that, Arjun. Yeah, no, thanks. I guess I'll just close by saying that it sort of reminds me of some of the things we used to say early in the years of Equal, where we wanted to create a network to support QI work framed with metrics that actually matter for emergency medicine, where the burden was manageable for emergency physicians, where the um, outcomes and the sort of the quality of what they got actually applied to the ED setting. So we used to always say for emergency medicine, by emergency medicine. And I think that that carries a lot of weight now, particularly at a time when we want to really articulate the value of emergency care, the importance of what we do in the ED, uh, in policy circles, with patients, you name it, um, in different arenas. So thank you and look forward to the future podcasts.